Hi, welcome to my Parsha Shir. Thank you so much for being part of our Torah learning. This Parsha Shir is sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and Jason Fuchs in memory of Lillian's brother and Jason's uncle, Jack Julius Glatter, Yaakov Yehuda ben Yitzchok, Zichon Levrocha, whose Yaratzeit is on the 14th of Kislev, his Neshama should have an Aliyah. Emotions are complex and multifaceted, influencing every aspect of our lives, from our thoughts and decisions to our interactions with others. They range from subtle undercurrents to powerful forces within us, and they guide us through the diverse experiences that life presents. To recognize and understand emotions, both in ourselves and in others, is to possess a crucial tool in navigating life's journey. This awareness transcends merely identifying basic feelings like joy or sorrow. It involves an exploration of the subtle nuances that often defy easy categorization. And it is through this active exploration and empathetic understanding that the foundation for a meaningful life is built. By embracing the full spectrum of our emotional experiences, we deepen our connection to ourselves and we foster more genuine relationships with others, paving the way for a life in which we can understand and accept ourselves and others with compassion in a meaningful and constructive way. The alternative is explosive. Misinterpreting emotions or not understanding that certain emotions are present in us or in others can lead to a range of negative outcomes, including misunderstandings in personal relationships, poor decision-making and even conflict. Some years ago, there was an impressive psychological study conducted by psychology professor Dr. Leanne Tenbrink and her colleagues at the University of California, Berkeley. The study was focused on and highlighted the consequences of misinterpreting emotions. In their study, which was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the researchers focused on the ability of people to detect deception. They found that while most people think they are really good at detecting lies and liars. After all, we all think we can spawn, spot a con artist at 100 paces. In actual fact, one's ability to know if someone is lying is about equivalent to chance. Hold on a minute. Do you understand what that means? It means that you are about as likely to spot a crook trying to fleece you as you would be at guessing whether someone is a crook by seeing their name in the phone book. But the crazy, crazy thing is, we all think we can do it, and we think we can do it well, right? Of course. This overconfidence in emotional interpretation skills leads to serious misjudgments. And yes, we never learn. Go figure. For instance, in a business context, misinterpreting a colleague's or vendor's anxiety during a meeting as dishonesty can lead to unjust accusations or just mistrust. And you could be totally wrong. It could be that he or she had an argument with their spouse that morning or that they find you intimidating. It's possible. Or they just heard that their house might be repossessed. And falling for someone's charm in such a way that you think you can trust them is no different. 
Some people have great interpersonal skills, but that doesn't make them honest. In other areas, such as personal relationships, mistaking sadness for indifference can result in a lack of empathy and support, potentially harming that relationship. I could go on and on. The range of possibilities is literally endless. What Dr. Tenbrink's study did was underscore the importance of not only being aware of emotions, but also being cautious in interpreting them. It demonstrated that any kind of overconfidence in our ability to understand others' emotions more often than not will lead to significant errors in judgment, affecting both our personal and our professional relationships. But more importantly, the study teaches us that we frequently don't know our own emotions, nor do we appreciate the emotional vibe we give off to other people. It can take years of therapy to understand what our issues are. We may think, for example, we love something, and then, after therapy, we discover that, actually, we are repulsed by it, and so we overcompensated in some way. What is even more troubling, we discover, is that by overcompensating, this triggered trauma in some other sphere of our lives. And all along, had anyone asked us, do you love it? You'd have said, of course I love it. It's great. In Pasha's Vayetze, there is an interesting tangent that offers a profound insight into exactly this point. And the funny thing is, if you didn't notice it, you might never notice it. The Posit tells us, that Yaakov loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Immediately afterwards, in the next Posuk, it says, And God saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Did you see the difference in terminology between the first Posuk and the second Posuk? In the first posuk, it says that Yaakov loved Rachel more than Leah. In the second posuk, it says that God saw that Leah was Sunua, hated. Really? She was hated? Who said anything about Leah being hated? The Orachim interprets this change of language to mean that the feeling of being less favoured was so subtle that only God could perceive it. Leah herself did not consciously feel hated by Yaakov. And of course Yaakov did not deliberately or consciously harbour any feelings of hatred towards her. According to Orachaim, this sense of Leah being less loved than Rochel was a nuance so deep within Yaakov's heart that it was imperceptible to anyone but God. If you would have asked Yaakov if he loved Leah less, he would have responded, of course not. And he would have thought that he was being that he was being truthful, that what he was saying was true. And even at that subconscious level, it had an emotional impact on Leah. A person's emotions are so sensitive that even a slight difference in the emotional connection between two people can impact on the relationship. God's solution was to enhance the bond between Leah and Yaakov by giving Leah children while Rachel remained childless. Although, as we see from the narrative later on in the parsha, it didn't quite work out the way it could have. Rav Shimon Schwab extends this concept of imperceptible but impactful differences 
in one's attachment to one person over another to the relationship between the Jewish people and God. In the same way that a man's preference for another woman, even if that preference is, is not a physical relationship or in any way immoral, but it still inherently affects his relationship with his wife, making her a sonua, in a subtle emotional sense. Says Rav Schwab, the same is true when one prioritizes anything else over our relationship with God. Doing, doing that will relegate God to a secondary status and ultimately, even though we are not conscious of it, prioritizing something over God will impact how we relate to mitzvahs and to our Judaism, even if we insist it doesn't and we completely believe that it doesn't which is why we all need to examine our priorities. In our daily lives, if something, whether it is our career or our personal passions, takes precedence over our spiritual commitments or over our Jewish commitments or over our relationship with God, then we have unavoidably placed God in the position of sunua. Not because we hate God. Chas v'sholem, of course we don't hate God, but because coming second even if it is almost first, means that we will always prioritize that other thing over God. It's inevitable. Rabbi Frand says that he once spoke to a group of very successful from Jewish professionals in New York, all of whom were deeply committed to their Yiddishkeit, by which he meant Minyonim, Daily Dafyomi, Tzdokus, Shmir Samitzvus, the lot. But even so, he sensed that their careers were extremely important to them. Their work life dominated everything they did. And as he was giving the share in New York, Rabbi Frand had an epiphany. He decided to emphasize that while it's totally natural to find joy in one's career, this should never ever overshadow the joy and fulfillment derived from Avodah Hashem, our service to God. By, by prioritizing your work life, even if you are diligent with catching a minion and learning the duff, your religious commitments automatically become secondary. But that's a mistake. Your religious commitments should never be secondary. That is exactly the message that Rav Schwab wants to convey. Our religious lives, our God-connected lives, have to hold a place of primary importance in our lives. Because if we treat our spiritual obligations as an afterthought, even if it is a very beloved and cherished afterthought, the kind of afterthought that we don't even see as an afterthought, in essence, we are making God our sanua. And like Leah, God will sense it. He knows because he knows everything. So we need to know. I would like to go back to the beginning of the story of Rachel and Leah. I want to look at how it all began. It, it's clear that Yaakov had always intended to marry Rachel and that he had no intention of marrying Leah. Immediately after arriving in Choron, he fell in love with Rachel and agreed to work seven years, seven years for her father Lovon as the price for marrying her. But Lovon deceived Yaakov. On the wedding night, after Yaakov had worked for seven years to get his beloved, Lovon substituted his older daughter Leah for Rachel. In that era, it was customary for the bride to be heavily veiled at the wedding, which made it difficult for Yaakov to realize the switch at the wedding ceremony itself. And then 
in the darkness and privacy of the marital bedroom, Yaakov also didn't realize that he had been tricked and he consummated the marriage. It was only on the following morning, in the light, that Yaakov discovered that he had been cheated. And this moment of realization is captured in the Pasuk by Yehiba Boiker, Vehine hi Leah. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. But how was it possible that Yaakov didn't realize that he had been given the wrong sister in the privacy of the marital bedroom? How does that make any sense? The Talmud in Megillah and Baba Basra steps in and addresses this exact question. According to the Gemara, Leah was aware of the deception being planned by her father. She also knew, everyone knew, that Yaakov was expecting to marry Rochel, her younger sister, whom he loved and had agreed to work for seven years for to earn the right to marry her. Leah also knew for sure that Yaakov would know it wasn't Rachel in the marital bedroom, even in the dark, and that she would be humiliated when he discovered it was her and not her sister Rachel. On the day of the wedding, Leah confided her fears to her sister Rachel, and Rachel, understanding the predicament and the potential humiliation and heartbreak that Leah would face if or when the deception was uncovered, made a selfless decision. She shared with her sister that Yaakov had planned for exactly such a scenario because he knew that Lavan was a ruthless crook who might pull exactly this kind of stunt. So together, she and Yaakov had configured a set of secret signs to identify that it was Rachel on their wedding night, selflessly, Rachel revealed the secret signs to Leah so that she would know what to do in that moment, resulting in Yaakov not knowing it was Leah until the morning. Rachel did this incredible thing to ensure that Yaakov wouldn't realize the switch on the wedding night, which would protect her sister Leah from the shame and embarrassment that would follow when the deception was discovered in the middle of the night. I think you'll agree that this is one of the most selfless acts ever recorded in Tanakh. This act of kindness by Rachel is the ultimate example of sisterly love and self-sacrifice. Rachel chose to spare her sister from disgrace, even though it meant giving up her rightful place as Yaakov's first bride. Medrash Eicha takes it even one step further, revealing that the long-term repercussions of Rachel's selflessness were unbelievable. During the tragic period of the First Jerusalem Temple's destruction, the Medrash captures a series of divine dialogues involving God and several key biblical figures, Yirmiyahu Anovi, Jeremiah, Avraham Avinu, Yitzchak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, and finally Rachel. It was a time of intense despair for the Jewish people who faced the harrowing consequences of the temple's destruction and the exile that would follow. Yirmiyahu, who was the prophet for the Jewish people during this turbulent period, was instructed by God to gather together the three patriarchs and also Moshe in the hope that their collective grief 
at the impending doom and their heartfelt pleas might sway God to forgive the Jewish nation. Each of these patriarchs, revered for their unique contribution and dedication to God, went ahead and presented their case before God. Abraham spoke first. He told God of his unwavering faith and about his willingness to sacrifice his beloved son Yitzchak at the Arcada, arguing that such a demonstration of devotion warranted divine mercy and that the Jewish people should be spared from total annihilation. But God was not convinced by what Avraham said and he was silent. Next up was Yitzchak. He emphasized his readiness to be offered up as a sacrifice at the Arcada, an act of ultimate submission to God's will. Surely this was an extraordinary act of devotion and God should take this into account and not give the ultimate punishment to the Jewish people for their errant ways. Again, God was not convinced and he remained silent. Now Yaakov stepped up before God. He recounted the many challenges he had faced throughout his life, highlighting his dedication to protecting and guiding his children, who would form the foundation of the Jewish nation. But God remained unmoved and was silent. Then it was Moshe's turn. Moshe was known for his unparalleled leadership of and devotion to the Jewish people, and he argued that his tireless efforts during their 40 years of wanderings and rebellions should merit God's compassion. Even this was not enough for God. Once again, he was silent. Despite Moshe's compelling arguments and the pleadings of Avraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, the Medrash tells us that God remained silent, not responding to any one of them. It was a profound, deafening silence and it spoke volumes. God was going to go ahead with the ultimate punishment. The Jewish people would cease to exist as his chosen nation and the story that began with Avram, Yitzhak and Yaakov and later Moshe was essentially over. It was then that Rochel boldly stepped forward. Her intervention was not only courageous, deeply poignant. She recounted her own story, a story of profound love and ultimate sacrifice. She spoke of Yaakov's deep affection for her, evidenced by his labouring for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. But when the moment of their union arrived, Rachel's father Lavan sought to deceive Yaakov by substituting Leah in Rachel's place. Despite the unbearable emotional blow, Rachel told God that she chose to act with extraordinary kindness, compassion. She shared the secret signs with Leo, sparing her sister the embarrassment of being revealed as an imposter. Suddenly, suddenly God was engaged. Rachel's argument was powerful. She was saying that if she, a mere human being, could overcome jealousy and pride to protect her sister from shame, how much more so should God, in his infinite wisdom and compassion, extend mercy to his people? Her reasoning was unique in that it did not challenge God's decisions. Rather, it mirrored God's own attributes of mercy and compassion. This incredible Midrashic narrative offers us an important understanding of the nature of the God-human interaction as portrayed in the Torah. 
The patriarchs and Moshe in their argument seemed to suggest that perhaps God had overlooked certain aspects of their merits. But that never happens. God doesn't overlook anything. His omniscience and omnipotence mean that he is all-knowing and all-considering. His silence following their pleas for clemency could therefore be interpreted as an acknowledgement that God had considered all the factors regarding the devotion and dedication to God of Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov and Moshe. It shows that any attempt to negotiate with God on human terms is inherently limited by our finite understanding and incomplete perspective. But Rochel, Rochel did something entirely different. Rochel's approach was not to question God's judgment, but to emulate his attributes of mercy and compassion. Her presentation to God demonstrated these qualities in her own life, and in doing so, she aligned herself with the divine will. Her plea was effective because it was rooted in an understanding of God's nature and a commitment to reflect that nature in her own actions. Rachel's plea became a powerful catalyst for change. She was the best possible advocate for her descendants. Her selflessness and empathy resonated with God, leading to the promise of return and redemption for the Jewish people, as was prophesied by Yirmiyahu. From Yirmiyahu's prophecy, as recorded in Tanakh, we can see that God agreed with Rachel and acted because of what she had said. So did God proclaim a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not here. And then Yirmiyahu continues, and it's so moving. So did God proclaim, Stop your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your effort is rewarded, says God and they shall come back from the land of their enemy. What a prophecy, it worked. We came back, we are back from the lands of our enemies in Eretz Yisrael, the promised land, and Rachel's words continue to resonate as we continue to prevail over our enemies until the day of redemption. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.